welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. This is your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about what we do every day at chicagojustice.org or get involved at cjpnation.org. Okay, so what are we covering today? We're going to do a two for today, Mayor Lightfoot's public speech on December 20th. We're going to look at the rhetoric and substance, what there was of the substance in that speech. She, I swear to God, you could replace her with any other mayor that's come before and there wouldn't be much difference. And then we're going to feature an interview with 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez on crime and violence. He's outspoken. We disagree about some things. We agree about some things. Um, but I do um, give him credit for jumping on. He is a uh, ward office broke was broken into that morning. He had cops traipsing through the background uh, in his office while he was doing the interview. So I do appreciate him sticking to um, our interview time, despite his issues. I will let you know right off the bat, there are some sound issues with his interview just because of internet issues. But um, I think the vast majority of it is good and you should um, get a lot from it. Okay, in segment one, Merritt Lori Lightfoot's December 20th speech on public safety. So let's take a look. And I'm going to pause or, you know, just alert you to the fact that there's a difference between rhetoric and actions. Okay, and you'll notice right off the bat, one of the earliest paragraphs, I'm going to read a couple lines of it. The rhetoric that's embedded in this speech that doesn't have anything to do with reality. Okay, so from from the speech. I carry the echo of sobs and deep despair of those victims and survivors with me every day. I will never forget them because we owe them an unrelenting commitment to not just find, prosecute, and incarcerate the perpetrators of the violence against them, but to proactively and relentlessly bring peace to our city once and for all. So no one else has to suffer like they are. And that is precisely what we have and will continue to do. Wow, that is a pure political statement. Pure rhetoric. I carry the echoes of sobs and deep despair. Whoever wrote that speech, I hope they got a bonus. It sounds awesome, but you know, pure rhetoric. I continue. I also recognize all of us must, the violence and crime are the manifestations of deeper problems. They are the offspring of poverty and neglect and psychological trauma that comes with it. It is the kind of poverty and neglect that too many communities like Garfield Park and others on the south and west sides of the city have endured for decades. I will, I have and will commit every bit of law enforcement muscle to fight this fight. But I also know that lasting peace and safety will not come to this city when the underlying root causes of violence and crime are also addressed once and for all. As a city, as a society, we have the capability and obligation to do both, increase law enforcement and address these root causes. Well, Mayor, Ms. Mayor, you increased the CPD's budget by a couple hundred million this year. Close to $2 billion, ladies and gentlemen, $2 billion. Where's the equal raise on addressing poverty on the South and West Side? Ladies and gentlemen, something like 10 years ago, the maybe even less, the money taken through the tax increment program, which the mayor runs directly under her under her thumb, 
well, the mayor at that time, I think it was Rahm, collected $660 million. Most of the pay, as you've heard on this podcast before, white people to do um, you know, development in white areas of the city. Or if, if the rare chance that it's done on the south and west sides, it's done in an effort to gentrify those neighborhoods. Until TIFs are gone, nothing will change. Nothing. It's all rhetoric. There's no action behind this. So she turns the guns. The CPD is on track to seize 12,000 illegal firearms off the street of our city this year, which will be another record, topping last year's record of 11,128. And again, the CPD will seize more illegal firearms off the streets than New York and Los Angeles. What she fails to realize is this is more evidence of the fact and her one of her nemesis, Kim Fox, in the state's attorney's office, came out over the summer and said this last summer, and Lightfoot and Superintendent Brown went epically crazy. The CPD in late 2013, early 2014, switched from pursuing people or pursuing cases in which people used guns. They fired guns in the commission of a crime. They stopped concentrating and pursuing those cases and they started pursuing possession cases so that they could rack up these numbers. This is all propaganda. At the same time, they're racking up these illegal firearms off the street numbers. Every year it's a new record. The, what's plummeting? The clearance rates for cases when people are using guns and fight, discharging guns in the commission of a crime. Those cases, the clearances have plummeted, even though the clearances are a total manipulated stat. Here we go. It's an epic, unbelievable failure. But Lightfoot's using the same propaganda that Ron did, that Daly did. She continues, send additional federal marshals to Chicago to assist the sheriff and the CPD to find and bring justice to the thousands of individuals wanted on warrants for violating conditions of release or other court orders. Ladies and gentlemen, those could be easily forgetting and missing a court date. That is not addressing violent crime. It's not, it's not addressing guns either, although it was in that section, right? That's crapola, right? But when you got a mayor who is arrest, 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 and more arrests, she's counting on her basically entire public safety strategy in reality, not in rhetoric, not in the report she puts out, but in reality, that's what she's doing. What has changed from Raman Daly? Can anyone explain it to me? The last part of the guns. I want, I want to remind you that anyone who provides information about the location of illegal guns that provides that leads to a seizure and prosecution will be eligible to receive up to $15,000. We have a million dollars set aside. We are serious about this and we need your help. So at 15 grand, it's about six and a half, seven guns per 100,000 times, so 10. So you're talking literally about 70 guns if they reward 15,000 per seizure, 70 guns. At least put 50 million up there. Not that that would be much of a difference because then you're only talking to million, 50 times that, what is that, uh, 3,500 guns. But she's not, it's all rhetoric. Even in the things she's trying to do, they're meaningless. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, this is not evidence. They're not asking for people to say, 
here's we're going to give you a 15,000 they should probably do it a lot more for helping us catch people who use guns and discharge guns in the commission of an illegal crime and a crime right an illegal act a crime they're not doing that they're still going after possessors it's an epic epic failure that for some reason lightfoot and the cpd think is awesome i've had sources tell me it's awesome they're right no they're wrong sorry it's an epic epic failure um, and it'd be different if we went after possessors and you were still keeping your clearance rates of cases or improving the clearance rates of cases where people were actually discharging the, the gun during the commission of a crime. But if it's either or picking the possessors over clearing those cases is ridiculous. So now we're going to go to electronic monitoring and we're going to be inviting two journalists from the Tribune on and i can't um i can see one of their faces because i know one annie sweeney and i forgot the other journalist's name from the trib they wrote a great article in the last week on how mayor lightfoot and superintendents rhetoric especially in this speech around electro electronic monitoring is pure bs and you're going to notice that i kind of hold alderman lopez's feet to the fire in the upcoming interview um related to this issue, because he's one of those champions that keeps getting wants electronic monitoring off. And let me just say, ladies and gentlemen, what you have, and just recently Sheriff Dart um, capitulated on this. He's been one of the early pushers and now everyone, uh, Lightfoot and Brown and uh, Vallis and Lopez and Spizzato and Napolitano are all jumping on this. They're against the idea of any of these people being on electronic monitoring. Well, there's so many murders and attempted murders and all these things. Well, that's great. First of all, they're not convicted of a crime. Second of all, bail wasn't meant to be people in jail waiting trial. And thirdly, um, you can't, the, their idea is these people in the crime must, these people in the community must be pushing and generating crime, right? They can't prove that though. And when they can, like crime in Wrigleyville is doing it, the numbers are so small which is what the Tribune just whips Lightfoot for. The numbers are so small that they're in, the numbers she uses are just lies and inflated. They're just wrong, right? And it's done for propaganda purposes. They're, the mayor and Superintendent Brown seem, they don't wanna make the decision, especially in the mayor, to do what they need to do to address crime and violence long-term in these communities. She wants to do it as, slightly less tokenism than Ram, who did it slightly more less or a less tokenism than daily. What's the minimum I can possibly spend? That's that's her goal. And so she's doing for looking for anything to lock up as many people as possible because she doesn't want to spend this the locking up people doesn't cost us any money, it costs us county money and then the state money. She doesn't care about that. So we will hopefully have those journalists on the show coming up. Let's get to um, some of the electronic monitoring. This is a little longer piece, but I think it's important to read it. Right now, today, there, there are too many violent people walking our streets wreaking havoc in our neighborhoods. You have heard me and the superintendent talk about the issue of the number of violent, dangerous people on electronic monitoring. I know no one who believes in our communities are safer if murderers, attempted murders, rapists, or carjackers are placed on electronic monitoring, or EM. That's untrue right at the face of it because there are plenty of EM supporters and essentially free to go about their business after they are charged. Of course, they are entitled to 
presumption of innocence and their and their day in court. But if you are charged with killing someone, trying to kill someone, taking a veal at gunpoint, rape, or violence against someone in your home or theirs, or or theirs for the for those people, I absolutely believe they should be locked up pending trial because they are they are a demonstrated real and present threat to the physical safety of people in the community as defined under Illinois law. That's an absolute lie. And she knows that she's a lawyer. She's lying. That is an absolute lie. The judges have to determine if you're an imminent threat. Now, if you have a personal squabble with someone in your home or on the street and something happens and there is violence, it doesn't necessarily mean you're an imminent threat to repeat it. First of all, it hasn't been proven that it's actually you, but that, that actually occurred and you did it and you've been convicted of a crime, but you're not absolutely an automatic um, imminent threat to the community. She knows that she's lying. It's a lie. And I know it's a lie, um, but also the Tribune, when you get to the Tribune article, which we will in the upcoming shows, and hopefully have the, off, the journalists on, you're going to see how much of a lie it is. And we continue, there's one little last part of this. Right now, the Cook County criminal judges have led almost 23 offenders with these charges back into our streets, in our neighborhoods, on our blocks. It defies common sense. It's not safe. And this practice must be stopped immediately. We are in crisis and state law explicitly requires judges to consider community safety and making individualized bond decisions. It does, they're making them, and you're wrong. It's very easy. Mayor Lightfoot is a, certainly believes that she knows better about every issue than everyone else in the world. So she's not going to be convinced otherwise. But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Mayor Lightfoot knows what she's doing. There's no hiding it. She knows what she's doing. I don't care if there are 5,000 or 20,000 of these offenders, Mayor, prove definitively that they are wreaking havoc. Not 1% of them or 2% of them, but 90% or 80% or 70%. She doesn't have that. That's why you're seeing no data. This is all propaganda. That's what she does. She's very good at it. She's incredibly good at pointing fingers. You got to give it to her. Suing gang members. Can we go back to the Back to the speech. That's why I will press the city council to debate and then pass the victim's justice ordinance. Nice, nice name. Total propaganda. And once again, a lie, because it almost has nothing to do with victims, but she doesn't care exploiting victims. Gangs are violent, dangerous, and ruthless. They don't care who they hurt in their quest for money and territory. We need to not just seize their cash, but their assets as well. We need to take away the profit motive from depriving them of blood money along with locking them up. They will not be this will not be the rightfully discredited forfeitures of the 1990s. We will also go after leaders of these gangs, the shot callers and the ones who overwhelmingly profit from carnage happening on our streets. We have a piece coming out on this and I'm, I'm, not, gonna, um, I'm not gonna tell you more about it other than to say this. She doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. Black gangs, about the mid, early to mid 2000s, black gangs were decimated. There are no big 100-person black gangs. She's insane. There's nobody to sue. So and otherwise, so if someone's involved in a shooting that isn't business-related or drug-business-related, drug, uh, do you sue them for the shooting? And I don't understand how that works. Don't worry, the journalists haven't asked her, and she hasn't been pushed to it. But it's a talking point. This is propaganda. That thing has no effort to pass. And I, I'll tell you, our piece coming out is going to prove why this doesn't work. So one last part of that, our homicides clearance rates, we get to homicide clearance rates now. 
is currently at 48%, which is up from an embarrassing 28% just a few years back in 2016. Improved, but not good enough. We need to hit 60% or higher by 22 by increasing the resources devoted to homicide investigations, lowering caseloads, and continuing to build community trust. Additionally, CPD must hold itself accountable for consistent improvement. To be clear, CD, CPD detectives have solved more homicides this year, 374 and counting, than any, than any other year in the past 19 years. We must build on that progress in 2022. Well, Mayor, once again, she's giving you a stat this time, but she's lying again. Yes, Mayor, in the last two years, last year, that the say they solved 374. By the way, that is, that's bullshit. That's a lie. That number doesn't exist because clearing rates are bullshit. If, they, if detectives think they know who did it, but they can't have enough, they don't have enough evidence to charge them, it's cleared. What does that mean? If you have enough evidence to charge them, then you know he did it and arrest him, go. What do you mean you don't have enough, enough evidence to charge him? How do you know he did it if you don't have enough evidence to charge him? And what gives anyone in this world the thought that the CPD can be trusted to tell us when they know who did it, but they can't prove it, or the person left the country, or they're locked up in another jurisdiction, they can't get access to them. What are they talking about? Who trusts that? Well, homicide clearance rates are up. No, they're not. That is bullshit. That is the most manipulated statistic in all of the criminal justice system. No one in their right mind would believe it. Next, you have David Brown, who got caught lying in a big charade in Dallas about lying about crime statistics, clearance rates, and all these things. I mean, it was a major blow up in Dallas. The Chicago media hasn't told you about that, but we've told you about it. He can't be trusted. By the way, we found out in Dallas, he, was, he got found uh, sustained charges found guilty of lying multiple times in a misconduct investigation around his fifth year on the job he's a more or less a convicted liar who wouldn't believe anything that comes out of a department he trusts that he runs you got to be kidding me not in that 374 let's say they did it which we know they didn't but let's just say they did it wow mayor would you believe in the two years um, you, you solved more homicides in, the, in 2021 after a 2020 that had one of the highest homicide rates in God knows how long. And 2021 was even worse. And it's a percentage. It's a percentage that matters. That's a BS number. She knows it, but that's what, that's what politicians do. They can't help but lie. So don't buy the rhetoric. What's new here? Nothing. She talks a little more about solving poverty and solving this. She ain't doing anything. She's got a billion dollars in tips. Almost none of it is going to the South and West sides. She keeps build, helping build, build buildings on the, you know, in the South Loop, the West Loop, Fulton Market, Lincoln Park, Lakeview. Come on. Gold Coast, she knows where her butter is breaded. I mean, her bread is buttered. She knows it. This is, you could easily put... Rahm or Daly giving the speech and no one would bat an eye. It's all the same. It's all the same BS, right? She's doing the same thing with reducing the cop numbers stealthily. Whether or not that's right, it's a whole different argument. She won't come out and just admit that's what she's doing. Um, because nothing has changed. Nothing has changed at City Hall except the demographics of the person giving us the BS. It's sad, but it's true. You know, I know Lori, but she's been a brutal, brutal, brutal disappointment. Um, on this issue for sure. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to go to our interview with Alderman Lopez. 
Um, uh, it's an interesting discussion. Once again, sorry about the sound. There's only so much we can do in these Zoom days. And then uh, I'll be back with you after it's over. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chicago Justice Project. I am here with 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez, who is in his, if I got this right, this is your second term? Yes. Right, the beginning of your second term? Uh, not beginning, but middle of my right. second term. The middle of your second term. Yeah, it seems like it's, God, where is time gone? Okay. Um, Alderman Lopez is very outspoken on crime and justice issues, police staffing, bail reform, and we're going to get to a, talk about those issues today um, and try to talk some facts and see what's going on. Um, first of all, Alderman, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure to join the podcast. Okay, so here's my first question. Do we have any idea how many officers Chicago actually needs? Well, the city of Chicago budgets for about 12,500 officers, uh, sworn members of the police department uh, every year. Uh, so when the question comes up of how many do we need, you know, that's what the city council provides for. Unfortunately, we also know that the administration has a running deficit of about a thousand officers. So even though we provide for 12,500, we're usually short thousand uh, every year just from um, lack of hiring and things of that nature. Okay, so I know as well as well as as well as taking into account officers that are promoted or retired or things of that nature. So that, yeah. that number, we're usually about, I'd say, you know, anywhere between 12 to 1600 short of what we allot for every year. Okay, so, and this is where it gets tricky. And this is where I've had issues with people, um, aldermen in the past, um, former mayoral, mayoral candidates. He's been on the show a couple of podcasts, a couple of times, Paul Ballas. In the pre-ROM, before Ron, there was a budget number of around 13750 or something in that nature for the Chicago Police Department. And since that time, Ron eliminated 1,400 positions in the budget. And since that time, people have kept saying we're short. And what I want to question people on when they say we're short is how do we know how many officers we need? There's been an assumption in Chicago that that budgeted number is somehow the right number. But yet people assume that, but then they can't go the second level, which is, well, how do we get to that number? Or is it scientifically proven that you need 12,000 for the 2.5 million that they are sworn to serve and protect? Right, right. And that's my perspective. And that's what I'm trying to push Chicago people more into. And I tried, I had this speech a long time ago with, the, I was at an event where the FOP was speaking also, and I pushed them on this issue. Why don't you force a transparent manpower study so that we all know what that number is and then we can work off of it instead of politics ruling the day here. And the FOP said, and this is under Mike Shields, one of his top people at the time said, it's not our job to know how many officers Chicago needs. And I was like, wait a minute, that's a safety issue for your officers. You keep saying they, especially, we're short, we're short, we're short. Well, how do we know what the number is? I mean, theoretically, and I am open to this idea that the number could be 11,500, it could be 15,000. 
without an empirical study, we won't know. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that issue because I know everyone in the media and, and politicians say we're short, we're short, we're short, but how do we know what actual number we need? Well, I think, you know, to your credit, those are two different questions. Um, and we are short, in my opinion, based on what I and 49 other people say that we need and said as, as the budgetary requirement. Because if we're charging taxpayers for 12,500, but we're only delivering 10,000, then we are overbilling the taxpayers and not providing the service that we've asked them to pay through their property taxes, fees, and other things. However, to your point, whether or not we have uh, a true manpower assessment is something that I think more and more politicians and aldermen and community leaders are seeing the need for, particularly as we see districts like 16, 17, 8, which are, you know, immense police districts that have the same manpower number as somewhere like seven, which is a third of their size, but has the same officer component. You know, it's hard to justify that breakdown when you know that their crime is happening in both districts, but yet there are half a million people in one district and 70,000 in another, but they both get the same amount of police protection for the budget. So I think that it would be in everyone's interest, to be perfectly honest, to do that assessment. Now, I don't fault FOP for saying they don't care, they just want their members, because like any union, they're looking for increased membership. Nobody faults CTU for saying we need more teachers, we need more staff that are going to be their union members without actually asking, well, do you actually need them? Or are you just saying you want them? So I think, you know, that, that, that is labor's role to always advocate for more members, more members, more members. Um, but we have to take a, a, a measured approach and say, what do we actually need? What can we make the case for? And then figure out how to genuinely pay for it so that it has an impact. Because otherwise you're just throwing money out there, throwing things out there without having a, a long-term solution. And right now, Chicago does not have a long-term solution in terms of manpower for police districts going five years, let alone 10 years. And if we keep playing games with the numbers and budgeting here and there and robbing from Peter to pay Paul, no pun intended, um, to get officers from one district to another, you're never going to impact violence and crime in the city of Chicago to change it in a sustainable way. You're just gonna keep playing whack-a-mole uh, district to district uh, without getting to the point where you can actually protect the people of the city of Chicago. You bring up whack-a-mole. That has been the entire justice um, administration, in my opinion, in Chicago, especially when you talk about policing. It's always about put out whatever fires in the paper this week, this month, put it out, um, move resources. I know we got a hold of, and we're, well, we're ending litigation. Well, to be fair, well, to, well, to be fair Tracy, if I could say, it's not just the police that does whack-a-mole. The entire city of Chicago's oh, bureaucracy, yeah. entire yep. government has always been reactionary. You know, the day that this city switched to a proactive government is the day that we're gonna see the changes that we wanna see. But right now, whether it's police, streets and sand, CDOT, you know, everything's whack-a-mole. It's put out the fire, like you say, uh, and just deal with the issue in front of you and not think past your nose as to what you can do to improve things. Right, no, I agree 100%. And the reality yeah. is, um, and maybe we should have one term, like, I don't know what the solution is to this. This, that is a problem across Chicago. Um, I know when you read 
the I focus on justice issues when you read like the inspector general's reports on the CPD administration over the last year, the deputy public safety inspector general, which I helped create that office. Like I, I always knew the administration of the police department, and this just happens to be the agency we're focusing on now, was never great. But when you see those reports, while they don't keep data, they can't, they can't locate records, even though they have the records, right? We, um, in litigation um, regarding the thousand man hire that Rom had, um, we asked for the study they did that they told Alderman in 2016 that they did to support that hire. And took them three and a half years. I'm not gonna say what the results of that were because I'm saving that for a big release, but I will say that um, um, they handed us an analysis they did about staffing for each of the districts at the beginning of one of the years. So then I sent a FOIA request for that and for all the other ones they did over 20 years. And within a week, which is unusual for CPD, I got a response, we don't have any such records. Wait a minute, you handed me that record via discovery in court and now I'm FOIAing it. You can say maybe I don't need it again, but you can't say it doesn't exist, but they're so broken internally, the administration and the management that they don't even, I, I bet you the person who signs that honestly thinks they don't have that record. I that would not surprise me. Left hand and right hand don't necessarily know what's going on, particularly in a, in a $1.9 billion bureaucracy that the police department is. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, um, God, it always just seems to get bigger. Okay. Um, I want to know what your thoughts are. And this goes back to data in the police department. Kim Fox, for whatever you think of her, she put out an analysis over the summer that showed that the CPD in 2014, the beginning of 2014, switched from targeting people who committed violence with guns, meaning some kind of crime when they shot a gun, robbery, attempted murder, murder, aggravated batteries, and switched from targeting those people to arresting people who were just gun possession. And gun possession arrests since 2014 have been skyrocketing. And I checked with sources high up under the police department and they confirmed that and they tried to defend that to me. You look at that same time period though, according to Fox, and it's been proven now, the rate at which they clear gun crimes where someone shot a gun has plummeted. And Brown, even though he wasn't around when it happened, defended that strategy. That was a McCarthyism. And then it became a, um, oh God, I can't remember the guy's name who got fired. Jody uh, No, 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 after McCarthy. Eddie Johnson. Eddie Johnson Eddie thing Johnson. became a McCarthy thing, then an Eddie Johnson thing, now it's a Brown thing. What do you think about a tactic where the police stop trying to clear cases where people have used guns to commit violent crimes and target people that are just possessing them? I think anytime you are not clearing and solving a case, and let's be clear, there's a difference between clearing yes. and closing. Um, and that's what you know, superintendent likes to say, oh, we have the most amount of you know, closures and clearing cases that were at 64%. Well, yeah. You're clearing them because you're closing them, you're saying there's not enough evidence and we're done looking. That is not a strategy for bringing justice to victims. And I have residents who come to my office. I had a mother in 
here a couple weeks ago in tears because her son was killed just dropping off his girlfriend. And the police have since closed the case saying, well, there's nothing more we can do, we're done. And they chalked that up as part of their success rate. That's not success. That is a failure to bring justice to families. And I think what they're doing is they're trying to go for the easier win, which is if we got a guy holding a gun, it's easier to prove that because we caught him with it than it is trying to go after someone who was shooting indiscriminately into a crowd or shooting at a different gangbanger or doing a drive-by shooting in a neighborhood in front of a school and trying to track him down and locate the weapon and do all of that. One definitely takes more investment from the police department standpoint than the other, but the one that requires the least amount of investment in terms of detective work produces the quickest win. And I think it's a travesty that they're going for the quick wins as opposed to the long-term solution, which is to go after the people who pull triggers because, and I will agree with Kim Fox on this, everyone in possession of a gun is not necessarily trying to use it to commit a crime. Sometimes we do know that there are people who just walk around with a gun to protect themselves walking home through the neighborhood. I get that. Our focus should be on the city. Those individuals who have no compunction in shooting someone else with a weapon and who have proven that time and time again. Sadly, those repeat gun offenders are the ones that are more often than not still walking around the neighborhood with impunity, while someone who may just have had a gun on him being a knucklehead is the one who's getting locked up. So that's something we not, may not agree on everything, but that's something we definitely agree on. I was appalled to see that. Um, and I was also appalled to see, all right, Fox release that. And then you see the mayor and the superintendent rip it, rip her for saying these things. But with a $1.7 billion budget, they didn't have the data to combat her and say she was wrong, which means she's right. Well, look. <laughs> on that issue. Well, well, maybe. I don't agree with a lot of Kim Fox's strategies when it comes to criminal justice. I think that she's overly lenient on many things. However, when you have a budget in a police department that should be able to refute things with facts and we know that they've kept records and have enough resources to do it, it does question the reliability. And whenever our legitimacy, the legitimacy of law enforcement is called into question, that is an issue all of us, whether you are on the left, right, or center of a discussion, should be very much concerned about. Because when an officer makes an arrest, their ability to arrest you and ultimately prosecute you should not be called into question because the people in the back room don't know how to keep their paperwork in order. That is what those officers are risking their lives on every day when they do their job to accomplish. And if we don't take that into consideration, then we're only gonna further and jeopardize them in the process. Right, and I, I think part of what people have to understand, especially about reform to some extent, <clears throat> I think there's this, and we're so divided as a country, that people think reforms that like lefties like me want are somehow anti-police. And that doesn't have to be the case. I don't want cops to get shot. I want there to be less shootings. I want there to be less violence. I want all of that to happen. We may differ on how we want to achieve those things, but I agree with you. I think part of what 
George Floyd, and we can go on Jason Van, uh, uh, Laquan McDonald. What they do is they cut away at the legitimacy of the police. And when you are, and that's the only currency police have. Police, I think, thought, and they have for a, for a thousand years, it was their threat of force was also part of the legitimacy about why people stood in line, right, or, or followed their orders. And the reality is, and we've known this in grad school, it's like their main currency is legitimacy. The people, we, I mean, you get to the Constitution, we agree, we allow ourselves to be police. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we have to have a police force. I'm not saying get rid of them, but there's nothing there. We allow ourselves to be policed. The role of the police is to keep and maintain their legitimacy. Fairness, equity, um, don't be brutal, all of those things. And when... Um, you allow things to chip away at that becomes a huge issue. One of the, I will agree, I had a, a friend that was an officer. So I met him out for drinks and I met one of his police friends. And I, and I met one of his police friends and I said, what do you do? And he's like, I push paper. Like, what do you mean you push paper? He goes, dude, I file. I'm like, really? And I won't tell you where he worked in this, where in the department he worked, but he goes, yeah, he goes, I just don't trust my bosses. The administration is so broken and so incompetent. Why am I risking my life? He was like, I got five years left. I'm going to push paper for five years and then I'm getting out. And that's also another issue is that the management is not seen as legitimate by their, by their, by their, their, their officers let alone by the public. By their subordinates. Yes. Those are both, those are compounding issues that- um, Are working against us. Yes. Frankly, yeah, they are. Right, yeah. Um, no doubt about it. Okay, it's, go ahead. No, no. Next. Okay, all right, let's talk um, quickly about bail reform. So I know CWB, um, Chicago, um, which I have a huge problem with because it's anonymous. So if they're gonna, if you're gonna write something to be legitimate, you have to put your name on it. I don't do anything anonymous online, um, and they definitely have a perspective. But they're they're like tracking the number of people that have been out on bail that have been rearrested for gun crimes. And I think we ended with sixty one last year. Okay, sixty one. Something like that. Yeah. Yes. And so was that. I'm not sure, let's say that was for six months, okay? Because I don't think they did it all year. So let's say that's 60, let's, let's give them some credit. Um, my problem with CWB is they're, they're, they don't put the proper context in the reporting. So let's double that to 120. And let's give them even more. Let's just say it's 200, okay? Gun crimes, shootings. CWB and some anti-bail reform people try to frame bail reform as the main problem in Chicago, rather than what it actually accounts for if you look at the numbers. So in homicides, Chicago ended with 797. I don't know how many homicides um, people were committed while out on bail. So that's not there, but shootings, there were 3,561 shootings. So even if we triple what they caught and get it to 200, we're still at 3,350 shootings. So my question is, well, one is, why is there such a commitment to people ripping bail reform when even by their numbers, it accounts for such a small percentage of 
the actual crime and violence that's going on in the city. I think the issue that people have with bail reform is that it lumps people who genuinely need a break, which are the, the individuals who do the one-off dumb things and might not have money to get out, with individuals who are habitual repeat offenders who could care less how many chances you give them, they're going to go out and recommit crimes as soon as they get out of the jailhouse. I think that is the issue that people have. That's the issue that I have, is that we too often don't delineate and differentiate individuals who make a once in a lifetime dumb mistake or have something happen versus those individuals who are what I call magnets of violence in our neighborhoods who no matter what you do to improve their life, they are just 100% committed to being assholes in the neighborhood. You could bleep that out if you like. Right. But I think that is what, I think that is what the issue is because that's the issue that I see. With. I have no problem making it so that individuals who, you know, do something stupid for the first time in their life and might not need to stay behind bars because they don't have $1,000 in cash to get out. I get that. And I can appreciate that because by and large, most of the population doesn't do dumb things. And if they do, it's like a once in a lifetime event. Got it. But we also know that there are people in communities like those that I represent that no program, no restorative justice, no nothing is going to change them. They're not gangbanging or drug dealing because they don't have access to jobs. Some of them have jobs and do this on the side. It's a lifestyle that they are enamored with. And those are the ones that we need to treat differently. And I think if you were able to look at bail reform as a multi-tier multi-tiered proposal, as opposed to just some universal flat out, everyone goes and we're good, you know, I think we'd have more support for reform-based measures than what you're getting right now, which is this all or nothing approach towards, you know, criminal enablement, in my opinion. I think ideally, to some extent, I think I, in an ideal world, you're right. But unfortunately, we're in America, and what we get is, yes. when we try to do nuanced things, we get mandatory minimums. So what most people don't remember is mandatory minimums were started by liberals. And what well, happened is you went they from want mandatory minimums to now everybody out. So no, no, but hold on. Swinging. Right, well, right. But hold on. We went mandatory minimums was actually put up by liberals to equalize sentences between at that point, black and whites, basically. And what happened right. is the government took the okay, white sentences and put them up to the black. Right. But they put the white sentences and made yep. it up to the black. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. We were trying to get the black to the white. And I think what has happened to some extent is that we have a situation where um, the justice system can only work in extremes. Right. Um, we can't we don't have a nuanced system, um, whether it's corruption or incompetence. No, we do. No. No, I think we do, Tracy, because when we do, because what you want, but, but then when we have nuance, you have politicians who get upset because nuance requires judges to think. 
and nuance requires judges to make decisions based on the totality of a circumstance within the guidelines you give them. But oftentimes, progressive or conservative will turn to those judges and call them activist judges for thinking. Um, but at the same time, we'll complain when, it, when we go too far to the right or to the left with sentencing and say, well, why don't they, this is nuance. So I think it's, you know, from the public's perspective, we have to finally come up with, well, what exactly do we want? <laughs> do you want absolutes or do you trust a judge to make a decision that you can live with based on the fact that you have now said that you need a nuanced decision? I was sitting. Um, I, I, I'm scared of nuanced decision by Cook County judges. That scares the hell out of me, right? Because you're not talking a, a super high quality uh, of because the system is so politicized. I was sitting in the presiding judge's office at 26 in California, a previous one many years ago. And we were talking about, he was talking about politicians who were like, they want me to get murder cases through the system quicker. And he goes and grabs the daily law bolt and it's election time. He goes, look who these idiots are sending me, right? And he's talking about committee, Democratic committee chairman who, who vote on the judges and slate them. And he goes, look at this. This guy is Latino. <laughs> this guy's Latino. He's, he is... He is rated unqualified by every par, including the Latino bar. He's going to win. He's going to come here. Here's a black woman. She's rated unqualified by every bar, including the Cook County bar, which is the black bar. She's coming here. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And he was like, Tracy, it's a miracle this court operates. They want me to get through things quicker here. Oh, oh. It's... Without, without question. As, as somebody who, uh, as somebody who, used, who well, is a Democratic committeeman and used to serve on those committees, I don't serve on them anymore because I know it, it, it's just a, a sham that the only qualification that you need to be a judge in Cook County is to be able to pay the $40,000 to the party to get, get the endorsement. Your ratings are optional at that point. <laughs> and I've seen even locally politicians put forward subpar candidates simply because they like the last name in a particular subdistrict as opposed to somebody's qualification. So I, trust me, as long as you have a process that's elected, you're gonna have a crappy process. Right, and then if you, I, I, like it's always, grass is always greener because then we'll, we'll, we'll just have the judges appointed. Okay, I can't remember a mayor or a Cook County board president or a governor that I would trust to make even 50% of the appointments not be total patronage appointments. I mean, we right. can't even do Supreme Court justice appointments anymore without right. them being political. So. No, right, right. It's just, I, because I, and I have been in, uh, we have, like, we have a bunch of FOIA suits, and I've been in some rooms with judges, courtrooms with judges in Cook County and civil, and I'm just like, oh my God, how did you get, how did you, oh, that's right, you got appointed. I didn't realize it was a $40,000 bill. Um, it is the, when, I, when I was first elected committeeman, the commitment was 25000 Now we're up to forty. Wow. So they raise money to pay off the party. To reimburse the party for, <laughs> I think is the correct term. <laughs> well, from your seat, not from mine, from someone outside of it. But God, that seems like. Um, well, you call it for what it is. I don't get any of it. So it doesn't right. matter. Um, all right. I think basically my last question is. 
Um, and I, I don't know if anyone knows this. I have been hearing a lot of rumors that um, Superintendent Brown isn't going to last through February. Um, and I was just wondering, um, well, I guess in my thoughts, I would like just one wonder, what are your thoughts on Brown? I know um, overall his time coming here and early in the pandemic, I guess I will end there. I think I've asked for David Brown to resign three times already. He's got awful horrible. But I also know that I've heard the same rumor that he's not gonna last until X about yeah, yeah. half a dozen times. Um, I don't see him leaving anytime soon because one, this is the best job he's ever had where he paid $260,000 to lead Chicago's police department from Texas. Two, the mayor needs him as her foil to stand in front of the cameras and spout out all of her bad policies for police reform, for police engagement uh, and for public safety. And he's shown no unwillingness or unhappiness in playing that role. So I don't believe that he's going to leave anytime soon. I think it's all wishful thinking on our part that he will go. Uh, because to your point, we have a leader who does not have the respect of those he's in command of or of the public that he's charged in tech. Um, it's a very bad place for Chicago right now to have someone who is so uncommitted to our safety as the head of our police department. I do have one last question for you and I want your opinion on it. This is, I've never understood. When Eddie Johnson got pushed out or fired, she bring, the mayor brings in Charlie Beck from Los Angeles. And Charlie Beck brings in all these reforms. And then his, his like underling in LA was actually working at the crime lab with the crime lab as a consultant. And he was supposedly going to get the job and continue those reforms. Malinowski, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And there was no reason to bring Beck in unless you to have him change things over two months, unless you're going to continue those reforms. Then Beck, Beck leaves like out of the blue. Like on Monday, he's like, I'm out of here on Friday. He leaves. His, his underling doesn't get the job. And then Brown comes in and changes everything. I know it's an outsider view, but you're on the city council. What the hell do you think happened there? If I had a guess with everything that I've seen so far, I think Beck said, Beck and or his number two guy said, we can make these reforms happen. We can hit the mark and do what we need to do for Chicago, but we need autonomy and we need to be the police. And Lori Lightfoot probably went cross-eyed at the notion that she wouldn't be in charge. And he said, you know what, we're out. We're not going to waste our time and deal with this. Um, the scenario in LA um, is very different than what um, we have here. And I don't think that the situation of having a mayor with her thumb on the neck of the police department is something that any of them were comfortable with and not something that he was willing to put his reputation on the line for. And let's look at that too. Before coming here, David Brown had a stellar reputation. He was a leader in Dallas, um, not only for the way he dealt with that hostage situation, but in general, he had some pretty good views that even conservative people and other folks that I know have said when they found out he was coming here, they were telling him not to come because 
your star can only get diminished by coming here. But he came here anyway. And he's playing a role that I think he knew that he was going to play. He knew he didn't have to move his family here. He knew he didn't have to live here permanently. He knew that other people were going to take care of business underneath and he was going to be the overpriced spokesman of the department. And that's the role that he knew he was walking into. It was the role that she designated for him. And that is why after all these 17 months, he's still here because this is what he knew he was getting himself into. Um, everyone else is under him making decisions, you know, from Eric Carter on down, disconnected from the police, you know, demoralizing the, the men and women who go to work every day, not connecting with the community, the aldermen, whatever, just simply reporting back to the fifth floor to ensure that what she wants to get done is getting done. That's what we got. And I think the only way that changes is that you need to do a clean sweep from top down and start focusing on someone who's committed to the city and committing to everyone's public safety. And first step in showing that would be having a superintendent who actually lives here with us to do that. He didn't move his family here? No, he's living on a month to month lease in uh, Streeterville, I think. Wow. <laughs> which, I did not which know is, that. Which is why there have been, which is why there have been occasions when there's incidents that go off and the superintendent's nowhere around where somebody else has got to give the speech or they've got to wait for three or four hours until his plane arrives. Oh, okay. Well, that explains this. All right. Alderman Lopez, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and jumping on with us. Tracy, thank you. Look forward to my next time. All right. Once again, I want to thank Alderman Raymond Lopez, 15th Ward Alderman, for jumping on with us, especially after his office was broken into. He could have easily canceled, had the police traipsing in and out, but we were able to get the interview done. You know, it's an interesting discussion. Um, I, I do have issues with how much he's on Fox News. He's been on Tucker Carlson in the last year or so. Um, he's been on um, Sean Hannity. That's like basically unforgivable. Um, I thought he was a little more nuanced in these in our discussion than he's than he obviously is on Fox News. Um, and I am I am a little. Um, happy to hear that he's for a staffing study where uh, CJP is going to be pushing this year, pushing that issue this year. We're working on uh, with the Paul Douglas Institute at the University of Chicago on a staffing project um, that'll hopefully come out early summer. So thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. Next week, we talk about NYPD surveillance technologies with Albert Fox Khan. Albert is the founder and executive director of STOP, which is a surveillance technology oversight project out of, I believe, NYU Law School. I know, I think he's a lecturer there also. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, whenever you get on the topic of, of vans that see through your house, see through buildings and walls and all the other technologies they have. It's very scary. It makes you wonder how much of those technologies the CPD has. We are starting a group with our CJP Nation that's going to focus on uh, surveillance technologies in the CPD and Office of Emergency Management and Communications and the 911 Center, also called OEMC. 
So if you're interested in getting involved in that or any other of our research projects, you can go to cjpnation.org and sign up or drop us a line there. You can send in a form and we will get back to you. So I will see you um, next Wednesday with our, um, with our interview with Albert Foxconn. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.